Claire and I are coming up on uh, 16 years of marriage in May, and uh, kind of looking back over the last 16 years of marriage, uh, we've moved a whole lot of times. We've moved all around uh, Augusta. We've lived all over the place. Uh, we've moved a bunch. We're kind of both pack rats. Unfortunately, we just get a lot of stuff. I don't know why. I don't know where it comes from. Like, grandparents, parents, everybody just piles stuff on us, and we're like, yeah, like, just give it to us. We want, we would love to have your trash, right? And so we take people's junk, we take people's clothes. I don't know what we're going to do with them, but we have the stuff all the time. And uh, Claire also, Claire has a thing for purses, for handbags. Uh, at one point, we actually owned a business across the street. I don't think the point of the business was actually to make money. The point of the business was, was to get cheap purses for Claire, right? Or at least that's how it ended up working out, uh, which that's fine. That's fine, but we have a lot of purses around the house that, you know, are, are done with. They're, they're no good. And besides purses, we always seem to have, like, a ton of clothes to deal with. We don't shop a lot, but we have tons of clothing. It's just everywhere, right? And so anytime we want to move, anytime uh, we need to do some stuff, it's, it's, it's inevitable that we're going to have to deal with, like, bags of clothes and big boxes of purses and handbags. And, uh you know, you're going to get this stuff ready. You're just going to take it to the dump or take it to Goodwill or yard sale it or whatever. But I learned something a long, long time ago about Claire. She does not use a wallet, and she doesn't use a purse rack. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to throw her under the bus. But, like, she'll get cash, and she just stuffs it in really weird places. Right? So I learned that about Claire a long time ago. She just stuffs money, like, all over the place. She just find money places, and it's weird. And she doesn't use a wallet. She doesn't use a purse like I would use a purse. Not that I would use a purse, but if I did use a purse, I wouldn't use it the way she uses it. It just gets stuff everywhere. So whenever we're moving stuff, when uh, we're getting ready to get stuff out of there, I, I started checking all her pockets of all the purses and all the pockets and all her clothes before we give it away because I didn't want to, like, give away money for no reason, right? And, you know, at first Claire would protest a little bit, like, you're not going to find anything in there. I've not used that bag in a year, you know? There's no money in there. Of course, I would, but, uh, you know, and she would probably be right. Like, if you look in the big part of the purse, there's, there's no money there. But if you start looking in all the little pockets, man, just wads of cash coming out everywhere, right? And, like, you know that little pocket inside the pocket of your jeans? Like, money stuffed in that little pocket, right? All the places least likely to find money, you find money. It wouldn't be always a big amount, but there was also, at the end of it, we'd, we've always collected a pretty good sum. And a couple times, I've pulled out like $100 of one little tiny pocket in an obscure place. It's crazy. It got to the point to where if we were hard up for cash, I'd just start digging through stuff in Claire's drawers, and, and we'd find money for a bill, you know? Where do you look when you need money? Maybe your checking account or your wallet? That seems logical. Uh, that's a good place to look. But if Claire and I hadn't looked in what we would have considered the least likely places, we might have missed it. Now, last week we started this story in Acts chapter 10 uh, through 11. It's the longest episode in uh, the book of Acts. It's the longest kind of story that Luke uh, pans out in the book of Acts. And so we split it up into two, but we started it last week. And it's the scene where Peter sees a vision of all these clean and unclean animals coming down from the heavens on a sheet, and God tells him to go and kill and eat the animals. And uh, it tells him not to uh, call anything unclean that God has called 
clean. And then we saw how Peter eventually interprets that vision to, to understand, as he says in verse 10, 28 of Acts, that he should not call anyone unclean or anyone uncommon, or anyone common, meaning he should enter in with Cornelius in Caesarea, who had also called for him, and the other Gentiles that were with him. Although it'd be socially taboo, uh, it would be something that he, a place he's not allowed to go. This new revelation said, go there. So last week we started asking questions about our own prejudices, uh, who uh, we are will- unwilling to go to, who we are willing to ignore. And we made a challenge at the end that, like Peter, uh, to enter in with those very people over a meal, those people we are most likely to ignore, those people we are most likely to, uh, to not want to go to. And this week we're going to kind of continue in that same story and we're going to continue to examine our own prejudice in some ways. And I want us to specifically look at how the kingdom advances through people and places we might would consider the least likely. Because sort of like, uh, like when I was digging through Claire's pockets and, and handbags and finding wads of cash, God does some huge things. He comes up with some huge things in what we might consider the very least likely places with the very least likely people. And so we're going to pick up the story and we're going to read the rest of it, starting in Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 34. And we're going to read all the way into chapter 11, verse 18. So just follow along with me as we finish this story. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with, from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, 
and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So we can see that Peter just kind of picks up his speech with the conviction that he was under that we left off with last week, right? That God shows no partiality. And this week, as we sort of continue to identify our own prejudices, I want us to see how Jesus, I want us to see how Jesus sees people how he chooses people. I want, to, I want us to see how he sees people and how he chooses people so that it will expose our own prejudices, our own blind spots, to see how we don't see the way Jesus sees because Jesus is always doing things to those that we would think the least likely. Now, I know I just read like a whole bunch of scripture, uh, this long kind of story, but we've got to spend some time in the story this morning. I, we're going to spend most of our time just going through this, this story to see how it unfolds, and to see what I'm getting at. Peter begins to preach. That's how he started, right? Peter begins to preach, and it's the only time we see Peter preach in like a narrative format where he's kind of telling a story, but he tells a bit of how he has actually seen the story of Jesus unfold. So Jesus was baptized with water. He was anointed by the Spirit. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And then Peter basically says, we were his chosen witnesses. We were his chosen witnesses. And he doesn't say this, but as he speaks from experience and ponders how God shows no partiality, he has got to be remembering that Jesus even chose him. Jesus even chose Peter. Peter, a fisherman, a nobody, blue collar, right? Peter isn't a scholar or a well-to-do. He isn't the least likely I mean, he's the least likely to become part of the king's, like, band of brothers. He's the least likely to, like, lead the charge of advancing the kingdom. Yet Jesus had allowed Peter to witness it all. Jesus had taken him and put him right by his side through it all. And then Peter continues the story. story. He says, we saw it all. And Jesus was put to death. He was hung on a tree. And then God raised him up from the dead. And then we ate and drank with Jesus. 
This is Peter who denied Christ three times as Jesus was being led to the cross, right? Like, isn't he the least likely person that you would go back to and hire for the job? He's the least likely that you'd go to and meet for breakfast before you go take your seat in heaven. But this is who Jesus ate and drank with. Even after the cross and after his resurrection, he eats with Peter. He drinks with Peter. And this is who he has preaching the gospel in the most unlikely places. Peter, the least likely. So Peter continues. He says, he commanded us, even me, even the least likely, he commanded us to preach to everyone that for everyone, for all who believe in him, there is forgiveness of sins. With God, there's no partiality. And that's the ultimate good news of Scripture, right? For all that believe in him, there is forgiveness of sins. That means for all. Like, it's a full reconciliation for anybody, for everybody, for all, to God, and full reconciliation to others in all creation through Jesus for those who believe and would follow him. Then... Before Peter's even finished talking, before he's even got it, the whole story out of his mouth, before he's finished the good news, the Holy Spirit interrupts and falls on the Gentiles there. And they start speaking in different languages. And this particular version, the ESV, says they were extolling God. Others say exalting God, praising God. My favorite uh, is declaring the greatness of God. The Holy Spirit falls on Gentiles, and they start declaring the greatness of Israel, God, to Jews who were there, right? This is, this is unexpected. It says that the brothers who came with him from Joppa, the Jewish Christians who came with him from Joppa are amazed. It's because these Gentiles were the least likely to be declaring the greatness of God, the greatness of Israel's God. This is the least likely to be doing that. Then Peter, as we know from like a little bit later in the text, remembers something that he heard Jesus say. He remembers something that he heard Jesus say, and it was this, that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I love that in the moment when the Holy Spirit's working in what seems to be the most unlikely way, Peter remembers Jesus. Peter remembers his friend. Peter remembers his Lord who was always doing stuff like this. He was always working in like these unlikely, least likely ways. And he remembers what Jesus said to him in person. And Peter, seeing that these Gentiles had received the same gift of the Holy Spirit that God had given himself and those others with him, he says to baptize them with water. This moment, this scene that's unfolding here is exciting. Right? I mean, there's some really big stuff happening here. It's crazy time. It's crazy town. It's like going back to the Pentecost thing all over again. The Holy Spirit just fell on a people he's not allowed to fall on. Right? And then they're like, well, I, okay, but he's doing it, so let's just start baptizing people. And then people are, you know, getting dunked and whatever. And it's exciting. It's full of God doing something unexpected in an unexpected place with an unexpected people. This is better than finding $100 in Terry's purse. It's really exciting stuff. But Luke, very quickly, in chapter 11, lets us back in on the tension that it's creating. 
right? He lets us back in on the tension of the moment because we immediately flash forward to a meeting between Peter and the circumcised in Jerusalem because news of what's happened has spread and we need to have a meeting. We've got to deal with this. I feel like it's such a dramatic scene in chapter 11. Like this uncertainty of what would happen in Caesarea with Cornelius before they even went is met by witnessing God move in the most unlikely and amazing way. People coming into the family who weren't supposed to be coming into the family. But then Peter stands before a council in Jerusalem. I just kind of imagine him like leaning over the table. So you were eating with the uncircumcised. Real creepy looking. So you were eating with the uncircumcised? It's dramatic. Like what's going to happen? Is this going to be like a new direction? Are we about to take a new direction? Where people, like any people, all people, even the most unlikely people can come be a part of this thing that God is doing Will there be, like, newfound unity, or is the church going to end up splitting? What's going to happen? This meeting has implications on what the church will look like in the future. It has implications on what the church looks like today. It has implications on whether we're allowed to be a part of that church. And I love Peter's answer because it's not a moment of, like, Peter's brilliance, right, where he, like, does some super intelligent unpacking of the Old Testament and, and points to this moment from, from back there in amazing ways and just blows everybody's mind. That's not what happens. Like Peter, least likely, has no scripture to stand on at the moment. It's like he, he still doesn't know exactly what's happened. He just knows it happened and that it was good. And he just speaks of his experience and points back to something that Jesus said. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then Peter just lays it out there in verse 17 of chapter 11. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Then in verse 18, they fell silent. They fell silent. Like, one of my favorite features in a song is, like, the rest, right? You know where the song's going, it's building up. Like, the band does it sometimes here, right? We'll be worshiping, it's building up, the music builds, and then silence for a minute. There's just a rest, the drums stop, everything goes silent. There's a break in the song. I don't know what it is about that moment. Maybe it's, like, the contrast between, like, the loud and all the noise and then the silence and the quiet for just a moment. Maybe it's the moment where we reflect on what the music was building up about and the anticipation of what's going to happen when the beat drops back down. But you know the moment, after the rest, after the pause, after that moment of silence when the beat drops back in. How much more do we sing in that moment? Like how much more loudly do we sing? I've heard it over and over again, not just here but everywhere. You take that rest, it's like a dramatic pause, and everybody's like, and, you know, and then we just come back even stronger. And it's neat to witness here. It's neat when we're worshiping together how we all just, like, come back singing stronger, singing louder. And you do not want to witness this, like, when I'm alone in the car, right? Because those dramatic pauses, that little, that little rest, that's when the ugly crying can start. Not bubbles, you know, singing, 
don't pull up next to me. I just don't listen to music in the car anymore because it's too embarrassing. But it's funny that the silence, that the rest, that the break can add so much to a song. Right? The silence is really the least likely thing you'd expect to add to a song, which is made up of sound and musical instruments and us speaking and singing words. But it adds like exponentially when placed in the right spot. And this is where we are in the story. Like the excitement has taken place. Some implications have been made. The tension has built. What's going to happen? Peter, Peter makes his argument. Who was I to stand in the way of God? And then they fell silent. And whatever comes out of the mouths of this council next just might change everything. What comes out next? And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And that's where most will end this episode. That's where most see this episode end. They see this story kind of come to a close. It's the pause, the silence, and then they glorify God, saying that to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. But I would just add a little bit more. I think it actually pairs really well with the rest of that chapter. It's already the longest in Luke. We may as well just add a little bit extra. But I think it actually really caps the story well. And I think, I think Luke wants us, the reader, to see something there is connected to this part of the story. See, the next few verses are sort of like the end of some of, those, of some movies. right? Some of these movies like where the enemies have been defeated, like the whole movie built up to the enemy being defeated or having a battle won or some conflict resolved or whatever, and the whole movie went there or whatever. And at the end, we get to see like a really brief uh, glimpse into the future of like what happens, how everything has changed, how the sun is now shining on the shire, you know, or the people are smiling, or how everybody now lives in slow motion with one another. And it's, you know, it just kind of gives us an idea of how things have changed because of this conflict being resolved or whatever it is. And what Luke does in 11... Chapter 11, 19 through 30, is show how the church flourished after these events. So let's just read that little last bit together. Uh, chapter 11, verse 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the per persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great 
famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Do you see what's going on here? Like when the church scattered from Jerusalem just a few chapters ago, after Stephen was martyred, and the church began to be persecuted in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. They went preaching wherever they went, but only to Jews. But God did some unexpected stuff. We've read about a lot of unexpected things that he's done in the last two chapters. He did some unexpected stuff in the least likely places with the least likely people, like Saul. And now there are people preaching to Greeks, and there's a people preaching to Gentiles. And so there's a church in Antioch where it wouldn't have been expected. And Barnabas and Paul get together, and they spend a year there. And this is where we were first called Christians. Then after this prophecy of famine, the church at Antioch gives back to those in Judea by a special collection, a special offering. The church of the least likely people in the least likely place send to the church of the most likely. This is help from what was once an unexpected place and an unexpected people, but they've now become part of one big, unlikely family of God. Now, I'm not going to keep us long with like the implications. I just want to go over just a couple quick things. I just want us to consider the least likely before we leave today. We'll just start with asking this. Who does Jesus look at as the least likely? Who does Jesus look like as the least likely? Like initially I would say nobody because he knows what he can do with and through each person, right? And even Peter says here that God shows no partiality. But I do remember Matthew 19, 24, where Jesus says, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And while based on Peter's statement about God's partiality, I'd say that Jesus doesn't really see least likely. I do think that Jesus, with these words, exposes like how much we don't see the way that he sees. He exposes how much we just don't have his eyes and how much we don't see others the way he does. I think he really exposes like how much we are really flying upside down. Who would his audience expect to have access to the kingdom? Jesus' audience. Who were the most likelies in their minds? It was the wealthy, the rich, the educated, the well-to-dos. But Jesus exposes with this statement that with all that stuff they have, they actually have a whole lot more in the way. So who do we look, look at as the least likely? Who do you look at as the most or that has the least likely? Who's the least likely to be a blessing? Who's the least likely to matter to us? Who are the least likely that we would go to? Because they'd be the least likely to steward our gifts well. Would it be the poor? Or maybe for you, would it be the rich? Would it be a particular culture? Would it be somebody dressed in a particular way? Somebody who lives in a certain neighborhood? Would it be somebody who lives in Evans that you consider the least likely? Would it be somebody who lives in South Augusta that you consider the least likely? 
Or is it even someone else? Could we even look at ourselves as the least likely to matter in the kingdom of God? What if we started checking the pockets, right? What if we started looking in the unlikely places? What if we let Jesus, like, flip our worldview around? What if we dared to look where we wouldn't normally look? It's going to happen if we start looking in those places and befriending people that we didn't know we could befriend. What happens if we have a family of least likelies at Redemption Church? You might get called some names. Probably get called a liberal. That's kind of the one that goes around. Like when you like let the gospel start putting you into action and loving people, liberal. And there's a side note to that too, right? If you've already been called names, maybe your new least likelies are the very people who called you names. Like I love the striving together for the gospel that happens in this story, in this meeting, right? They push through this tension. They confront the tension. They look to Jesus together. They realize that Jesus endured the cross for all people, and they let their prejudices be confronted by the gospel. And the church flourishes. Like I mentioned this last week, but Dante Stewart, he preached here a couple months ago. He's worked out some thoughts from a book called Wide Awake and some others just put this out there. Compassion breeds proximity. Proximity breeds relationship. Relationship breeds justice. Justice breeds flourishing. We were challenged last week to invite somebody to dinner who may represent those we thought we were better off ignoring. Right? To invite somebody to dinner uh, that, that, that represents those we had some prejudice against, intentionally or not. The idea was to get into proximity, right? The idea is to get in proximity that leads to relationship, that leads to justice, that leads to the flourishing of the kingdom of God. I think the church today is like in desperate need of the least likelies, right? It's in desperate need of the least likelies, those who think that they're least likely to make a difference for the kingdom. And so we don't go and we ignore people, and we don't do anything, we don't let it, the gospel like really inform our identity and send us out with good news. But the church desperately needs the least likelies to risk the defamation of their name, courageous like in their new identity in Christ, to go and witness to others of Jesus, to those who we think are least likely. The church in Augusta today desperately needs Redemption Church while we might feel least likely sometimes. The church in Augusta really needs Redemption Church to be a church of the least likely. Because the least likely in our community need to hear about Jesus and what he's done through the cross. They need to hear about how much he loves them. They need to hear about the barriers that Jesus has removed through the cross. The barriers that were between them and us but even greater, the barriers that were between them and God. And they need to witness a church. They need to witness a body of Christ that's a living testimony to barriers being broken and, and expectations being flipped upside down and undone. And they need to see people united as a family that no other system and no other policy seems to make happen. 
People need to see that. And that's what Jesus does. He reconciles people that just cannot be reconciled. So the church as a whole needs to be listening, I think, in the most unlikely places. Like we've heard a lot of good things from the white evangelical church in America, but we need to be listening elsewhere too. Like the church in Jerusalem, they got in on what was going on in the church in Antioch, and eventually they received a blessing back from that church. We need to be listening to our African-American brothers and sisters. We need to be listening to our Hispanic brothers and sisters. We need to be listening to women. We need to be listening in wherever we haven't before because of our own prejudices, because of whatever has blocked us from believing that Jesus has something for all people. And I think that it starts in the most unlikely places. It, I think it may seem like uniting people and, 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 and seeing all those barriers broken down and like uniting over all the current divides in our country and even in our city, I, I can see how that seems too big. Or like it seems like saturating even just downtown with the good news of Jesus, that can seem too big. It's not too big. It, it starts small, right? Jesus already did the big part that was for all people. But it starts small. I think Jesus would use you to do unlikely things and to change the whole city. And if he would, who are you to stand in his way? Who is Redemption Church to stand in his way? It starts small. It starts right around our tables, right in our front yard, in our backyard, right out here on the patio. It starts small with proximity. It builds relationships. It breeds justice. It breeds faith. I think our church sees God move in really big, reconciling ways. If we will look to Jesus and see through his death and through his resurrection, that there's forgiveness for all who believe and get in proximity with somebody who we thought was least likely. Believing, like Peter, that God shows no partiality. And neither should we. Compassion breeds proximity. Who are you getting close to? Who are you least likely to get close to? Proximity breeds relationships, which breeds justice, which breeds flourishing. The challenge this week remains the same as last week. Even if you think that you are the least likely to matter, look to Jesus who has given you a new identity and sent you out as a minister of reconciliation, Paul says. Go to those you thought of as the least likely and invite them to dinner. Get to know them. Do something together. And look to Jesus so that you might see the way that he sees and loves the way that Jesus loves. He's our hope in this. We're going to move into a time of response. That's what we do each week. And the band will come up and they'll lead us in worship uh, through music. It's a time for us to reflect, to respond however you feel appropriately. You can pray together. Um, we even have like a prayer request box. You can put prayer prayers in. Um, it's a time where we We'll give our tithes and offering. There's a basket in the back where you can give your tithes and offering as an act of worship also. It might be a time for you to, to contemplate what your next steps are at Redemption Church, right? Or what your next steps are even after this message and this story. Like, how are you plugging in here? 
Maybe it's time to commit to go check out an MC. Maybe it's time to commit to become a member or at least check out what that means to become a member or get involved with the DNA. Maybe it's time today to commit to ask your neighbor over for dinner or to get in proximity with somebody you think you're least likely to have a relationship with. It's time for us to ponder those things and respond appropriately. And then lastly, each week at Redemption Church, we take communion together. So we'll come down these two side uh, corner aisles, and there'll be people serving on each side. And you take the bread and you dip it in the wine or juice, representative of Jesus' body and his blood that was broken and shed for us. We remember and proclaim to one another. Whoever believes, he did it for all of us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And he's done, he's done and is doing a great work. But we are reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, and we are reconciled with each other. So in our actions, we're saying that to one another. We're rem- remembering together who he is and what he's done. And so if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of Redemption Church or not, we just invite you to come and take that with us, to remember and proclaim Christ together. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you not take. Uh, we don't want you to feel left out. If you can't say it, don't say it. But hear what we're saying in our actions. Jesus Christ died rose again for all people and for the forgiveness of sins for anyone who would believe and follow him. And you're invited in. Let me pray with you. Our Father, I thank you for uh, this story. And I, I thank you for this early church. I thank you for just how you're unpacking stuff in Acts, even in my own life and hopefully in the life of this church. For exposing how we just don't see like you see yet. For exposing like blind spots, for exposing like what you're really about, reconciling with people to yourself, reconciling creation to yourself, restoring and redeeming all things to the glory of yourself through Christ. Father, I just ask that you open the eyes of our hearts to see how great your love is for us, and then give us eyes to see that if that's true, it's also really great news for the people we don't know. It's really great news for any and everybody. Somebody's got to tell them. And not just like, not just go and like dump it on them, but like show them how much you love them because you've shown us how much you love us. Would you allow us to be in relationship with you, love people the way you love them? Use Redemption Church. Make us a place filled with people who are very unlikely to be a family, but have become the family. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.
a time of prayer which we do each week 